And good morning, everybody. I'm Matt Frisbee in for Gary Folio, and I'm here with Bob Dodds, and we've got Let's Get Growing going again for this Saturday, August 27th, 2011. And uh, good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, Matt. Hey, uh, it's been a busy, busy week so far as <laughs> agriculture has been concerned, hasn't it? It really has. We've been uh, very busy and uh, talking a lot about crops and what expectations are, talking a lot about lack of rainfall. And also this week, we had our planning session for Shemek Forestry Field Day. Mm. And I just wanted to mention that this will be the 36th field day. So it's Ooh. an ongoing, long, long-time program and the largest forestry field day in the state of Iowa that's sponsored by Iowa State Extension and the DNR. And I think we came up with just some outstanding topics um, um, for the program, and we're really looking forward to that. And I guess one of the things I wanted to comment on is just to say that the field day will be, as always, the first Tuesday of October. And uh, this year is going to be just a little bit different. We're going to start off the program bright and early in the morning at 8 o'clock at the uh, community room in Donaldson. We've got a, a very nice presentation that we're going to see, and that will last till about 9.30, and then we're going to head out to Shipping Forest. So I think we have some really neat things on the program this year, and as we finish up those details, we'll be talking about those on our radio program here in a couple of a couple weeks to come. Okay, okay, that's fine. Um, let's see, what else? Everybody's talking about it. I, I, I have to mention it because, you know, you figured rather prominently in the news this week, too, uh, especially for farmers around here, the crops. Right. Oh, my goodness. And, and, the, and I'm seeing corn stalks out there that look like they should be in uh, the end of October instead of, uh, you know, the middle of August right now. Is that, uh, is that as widespread as it, as it seems to be? It does. Uh, in fact, Matt, you made a, an excellent point. We've been out in a few of the fields uh, looking at uh, some of the, especially the corn, and we have a way of just simply counting the number of years, measuring those years, doing some weights, and um, of course, these are just estimates, and it depends almost where you stand as to what the yield will be, but uh, it's not uncommon to see yields of 100, 125. That sounds, um, well, we're used to seeing 175, maybe mm -hmm. 200, maybe yes. even over 200. So it is quite a, quite a the, the weather definitely has had an impact on the crop. Many of those fields, the years look normal. I mean, as far as when you're driving by, but when you start to pull those shucks back, you kind of start to see there were some problems with pollination. Uh, we were having some temperatures well into the 90s, almost to 100, mm -hmm. if not 100, uh, during July. And, of course, that had a lot to do with how, how this corn pollinated. And then, of course, on the other hand, too, you know, we had 10, 12 inches of rainfall in June. And I think sometimes we forget about that. And we lost a lot of nitrogen from from the soil, which, of course, is one of the primary nutrients for that corn crop. And so it really turned yellow in August. And now, of course, we're seeing that crop turn pretty brown. And that definitely decreased the yield tremendously. Yeah, I remember uh, reading a news story that's saying that you're estimating up to 30% of the corn uh, crop may be gone. Probably even that may be pretty conservative, I'm afraid, on some of those acres. And of course, right now, our attention and focus is turning to, to the soybean crop. This is a critical time. We're almost moving out of that window where um, rainfall will make a dramatic difference. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. We are definitely, a rain will make a huge difference for soybeans. But every week or every day that seems to pass by without a rain um, really will reduce the yield and will not recover from from that uh, loss in time and loss in rainfall. So uh, soybeans could really, really take a, um, a beating if we don't pick up some rain here in the next 
few days. Yeah. I made a run up to uh, Milwaukee over the weekend ah. and uh, was taking a look at farm fields on the way up <clears> from there. And once you get out of southeast Iowa, uh, if you're running up the, uh, the the west bank of the Mississippi, so to speak, corn doesn't look so bad once you get north of, say, Des Moines County. Once you get in, start getting into Louisa right. and into right. uh, Muscatine County, corn's looking actually pretty good up that way. Uh, that's true. I get to cover, I, as you, Matt, I get to go on up into Louisa County or, as you mentioned, Louisa County. We we have seen some, some pretty strong winds on some of those fields up there. We've mm-hmm. had some hail, but exactly uh, with those weather events, we've also seen some rainfall. So it has made a huge difference to them. Okay, well, we got to take a break here on Let's Get Growing, but I'll be right back. I'm Matt Frisbee with Bob Dodds on Let's Get Growing. Today we're going to talk about growing a certain type of vegetable, but not to eat. It's for the birds. Joining me at the DeMoss Pumpkin Farm is Linda Nay from ISU. And Linda, tell us more about these birdhouse gourds. Well, birdhouse gourds are a lot like those little ornamental gourds we buy in the fall, but they're larger and really more functional. They're planted in the spring after the last frost, and they're harvested about four months later in the fall when the rind of the gourd is very firm so you can't puncture it with your fingernail. Well, when you go to harvest them, make sure you take it with about six inches of stem attached to it and wipe them off after you've harvested them with a mild bleach solution or a disinfectant. This will remove any of the disease causing organism that might cause them to rot. Then lay them in single layers in a protected spot like your garage and then wait. How long do you have to wait? (laughs) Well you have to wait quite a while. It might take six to eight months for them to thoroughly dry to the point where the skin is firm and you can hear the seeds rattle inside. At this point we can turn them into to birdhouses. And if you want to attract purple martins, which many people do because they eat mosquitoes, you want to drill a hole that's about an inch and a half in diameter. And in relation, that's about the size of your milk jug cap. So put that down, trace around it, drill your hole, remove the insides, and then you're ready to let your creative juices flow by painting them with acrylic paint and all kinds of wild colors, or just simply staining them like this Mm -hmm. and coating them with polyurethane. A coat or two of polyurethane will protect them for the elements drill holes in, attach a wire to hang them in the trees. Now if you're trying to attract purple martins, it's a good idea to hang several in the tree because these tend to nest in colonies, so you want more than one. Okay, and I like how you use nature to attract nature. That's right. All right, thanks Linda. Mm -hmm. And if you would like more information on birdhouse gourds, be sure to log on to our websites. Well, we're down at Gate City Seed Company. Dave's over here doing the jumping around, rain dancing thing. He's been rain dancing ever since last Saturday when we did this. Still isn't rain. You got to change that step. Got to change that step. Let's get something else going on here. Need a little water, but anyway, there's still problems we got going on. We got bugs. Bugs are trying to come in the house. Of course, we got water in the house. They're trying to come in. I don't know if that's why, but they are trying to come in. We can stop them at Gate City Seed. The mice are moving every time the weather changes. They're moving. We got the one bite at Gate City Seed. It works every time. We can help with the rodents and the bugs. Come and see us at Gate City Seed, 824 Main in Keokuk. KSB Bank has been in existence since 1868, proudly serving our customers. We have strong roots and a history of providing excellent service to generations. So if you need banking products and services, stop in at one of our four convenient locations and let our dedicated employees work with you to start your money growing. KSB Bank, member FDIC. Strength you can bank on now and in the future. Fall means beautiful colors of red, orange, yellow, and browns, and at first you think of trees. But shrubs can be beautiful, too. I'm here at Ryman Gardens with Dr. Anne-Marie Vanderzanden from ISU. And Anne-Marie, what kind of shrubs should we consider for fall color? 
Well, the nice thing is there are a lot of different choices out there. It really depends on if a person likes the reds and the oranges or if they prefer the yellow. So um, with that in mind, my favorite group of plants are the viburnums, and mm -hmm. so I'd like to talk about those today. This is the American cranberry bush. What I like about it is the nice kind of bronze colored foliage. It also has a bunch of fruit that it'll set, and then the birds can come on feed on that, which is, which is a nice bonus. Mm -hmm. Some of the, the group of the plants also has yellow fall color, so red or yellow. Another smaller shrub that I like is Itea, and this is Henry's Garnet. I like this because as it starts to develop, you get this nice red color, but you also get this nice bright green, and they contrast, and they just really jump out. So um, it's nice as it transitions. Um, and then another group that most people are familiar with are the sumacs. You'll see those growing along the roadside. They've got the mm -hmm. nice pretty red fruit. We have a variety that's relatively new called Tiger Eyes. It has this kind of yellow color all season long. Uh, it intensifies in the fall, so it's even more strong, but um, looks great all season long. It gives you a little fall color, if you will, all season. Yeah, it looks great. Now, can all these shrubs be planted in the fall? Yeah, fall is a really good time to plant in the Midwest. You want to make sure you get them in the ground before, you know, the middle of, of October might be a little bit late, but between now and then, get them in the ground, they can get established, and then in the spring, they're, they're ready to have a jump start. All right, thanks for the tips. Sure. And if you'd like more information on shrubs for fall color, be sure to log on to our websites. For Gardening in the Zone, I'm Liz Gelman. And we're back on Let's Get Growing. I'm Matt Frisbee in for Gary Folio this week. Gary, a uh, very busy man this time of year. He's uh, doing a few things. So uh, I was more than happy to step in uh, because I like Bob. Bob's a great guy, to be perfectly honest. Bob Dodds from the Iowa, excuse me, the Iowa State University Extension Office here in uh, southeast Iowa. And uh, you wanted to add a couple more things about soybeans or safety? I do. Thank thank you, Matt. Yeah, for, yeah. For that, 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 couple of questions come up. What are farmers doing right, right at this time of the year? And I just wanted to talk for a couple of minutes or speak for a few minutes about safety. This is really a dry year. There is just no question, and, and we're really concerned about it. So we're really encouraging farmers to, to make sure and check over their combines very carefully, looking for those bearings or any types of repairs that need to be made. Uh, bearings that are going out, whether it's on an axle or whether it's on a uh, cylinder, whatever, can really be a, they warm up and become very, very hot. And of course, as this dry material from these cornfields come into that combine, it's really a great potential uh, for fire. So we're encouraging farmers also to make sure and check it over and make sure that it's been well-maintained and lubricated. Also, make sure that the fire extinguishers that are on most of our combines, make sure that they're full, fully charged. And then it's a very good idea, two, maybe even three times during the day when you're combining, when we get to that season, that you use maybe a leaf blower and blow all this debris away from that combine and make sure and keep the combine very, very clean. That's, that's very important. This is the time of year also that farmers are starting to clean out the corn bins, kind of getting them ready for the crop that they will harvest, whether it's small or large. We're still, we've got storage uh, facilities that need to be cleaned and treated. And the same way with augers, we need to check the bearings, make sure that they're all greased and well-maintained, and also do go over the electrical uh, part of, of many of these um, uh, facilities. They do require a lot of electricity, some pretty high amperage and voltage as well. If you're needing to call an electrician, you should do that. And then in addition to that, we want to make sure that the equipment that we use to haul the corn or soybeans from the field, whether it's a semi, whether it's wagons, tractors, we want to make sure that the lighting is correct and also that uh, we've replaced any of those bulbs that have been burned out. So we want to make sure that everything's up to speed and ready to go. 
Normally, we'd probably see harvest about third week of September get started, maybe last week of September. I really believe that we're going to be two weeks well ahead of that. As you mentioned, Matt, the crops really changed, matured extremely quick, especially with these high temperatures. And so I think we'll probably start to see some corn harvest take place right here in southeast Iowa probably the second week of September, which which is pretty wow, early. That's, maybe that's even sooner. Early, maybe yeah. even sooner. Yeah. So. Uh, the moisture content's dropping on this crop very quickly. Of course, you know, we like to harvest corn when it's in its 20 to 25% moisture content. Soybeans around that 13% moisture content. But um, uh, I think that's going to happen really, really quick this year. Well, of course, um, you were mentioning uh, the, the danger of fire. You're actually right. talking about some of the fields being dry enough that oh, they could my. actually catch fire. They are so, this is such a year. I can remember a couple of other years very similar to this, and it kept our fire departments extremely busy. We want to be very careful. Um, These cornfields are so dry, and not only just the cornfield, but the areas surrounding the the cornfields, because of the lack of moisture, has just been so dry that once we get a fire going, and of course this time of the year we usually get some pretty strong winds Mm -hmm. or some breezes, Mm -hmm. and they can just move a fire so quickly and it can get away from us very, very fast. So we do want to be careful. Well, we've been talking about corn, and you did mention that we're not quite out of the window for soybeans. Do we have... uh do we have, like, an approximate cutoff date when rain's yeah. not even going to help the soybean crop? Yeah, I was afraid you might ask that. I'm but sorry. That, no, that's, that's <laughs> a great point. You know, we, we'll, we'll benefit from rain probably all the way through September on soybeans. But the truth of the matter is we really need that rain now. We'd like to have seen about uh, an inch a week all the way through August and then the same thing for September. But... Um, we haven't seen that, of course, and so, you know, normally we hope for 50, 60 bushel soybeans. I think even if we received rainfall now, we'd probably at the best see 40 bushel beans, and of course every week that goes by we see fewer. And of course this is having a tremendous impact on corn and soybean prices and what farmers will receive. Of course we've had problems along the Mississippi or along the Missouri River and flooding. Mm-hmm. And of course, we just had the Pro Ag Tour here just this last week, and that covers all of the Midwest. And Indiana and Illinois have been pretty challenged as well, and Missouri as well. As you mentioned, Northern Iowa has done pretty good, and so has Wisconsin and Nebraska. But the corn crop for on the United States and probably for soybeans will be much less than, than what we had hoped for. And unfortunately, that's going to weigh a little more heavily on gas prices as well, since right. we use so much ethanol now, too. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And in the same way with food prices and, and uh, livestock production as well. I was just thinking it was horribly unfortunate. They're going to be getting all this moisture on the East Coast because of uh, Hurricane Irene, but you know, we really need one to actually come through the Gulf. And, you know, double whammy, help out Texas and then, you know, come on up uh, the up the jet stream and come help come visit us for a while, you know. You bet. Exactly. We were kind of watching this storm and we don't wish anyone bad luck, of course. But as you just mentioned, Matt, we were really hoping this would come up through the Gulf. And I've talked to some friends or some people in Texas and they, they think it's become so dry that it's too dry and it'll never rain. And so mm-hmm. and, and because of the, the water cycle. But but um, we need that jet stream to change uh, so that we can pick up some moisture and make a huge difference. Well, with uh, the increase in uh, various grains and stuff like that, food prices are definitely going to uh, go up. So yeah. uh, I presume uh, we've got some uh, tips on how to preserve our fu- fruits and vegetables, our, exactly. our, our sacred fruits and vegetables. <laughs> exactly. You know, that, that's a great point. 
uh, we are seeing fruits and vegetables move up in, in cost and in price quite a bit, and, and, and that's happening. Um, so we have had a few people that had some gardens that they were able to uh, get planted this year, and they are seeing some things late in the year here, which has been very, very nice. Uh, many things were planted very late in the growing season uh, because of the wet spring. One of the one of the publications or a booklet that you can secure through your extension office is called So Easy to Preserve. It is absolutely a fantastic reference. It's com- completed by uh, a lot of people at, at the different universities, and it's very it's a plain book. I mean, it's not full of beautiful pictures or anything, but it does a very nice job. It's one of those books that we like to refer to as Back to the Basics, and it's put together. Uh, the Cooperative Extension Service of the University of Georgia is kind of the home for this book, but all of the universities across the United States had some input in, I should say land-grant universities, had input in how this was written and put together. But it is what we refer to as the guide. It is the true book. Um, this happens to be the fifth edition, which I believe is the most current. But it's called So Easy to Preserve, and uh, it is available. You can order it through your county extension office. I forget the cost. I meant to pick that up this morning, Matt, before I left, but it's a reasonable book. There's also a CD that goes with this, so if you have an interest in preserving some fruits or vegetables, this is a great reference to get or to give away to someone who may have an interest in that. There's also some very nice websites that go along with that, and they talk about that a lot in this book. And, um, again, this is a great reference. Another book that I brought with me today, because um, I, I, I almost chuckle about it, uh, it's, um, I, I attended Iowa State University along with a lot of other graduates of, in agriculture. But this is a book that somehow I went through all through high school, all through college, and never had the opportunity to read. But I was with a couple of master gardeners a couple of years ago, and they mentioned this book. It's called Five Acres and Independence, and it's written by Morris Keynes. It is absolutely a fabulous book. It was written back in the early, I believe it was in the very early 1900s, but it's just a fabulous book. I just absolutely love it. Um, yes, it's, pretty, it's very old, but many of the subjects that they mention fit very, very nicely into today's what, what we're doing on our small acreages and on our small farms. And I just think it's a wonderful book. So if you have someone that's interested in living on an acreage and growing fruits and vegetables and raising a few small or having a small livestock enterprise, uh, this is a great, great book. It's called Five Acres and Independence. But it goes through all the different things about being on on a farm, a small farm, the tools you need, controlling weeds, fruit tree pruning, and I could just, it is just... uh, Uh, 51 different chapters, 387 pages, and it's just packed full of really what I think very, very interesting information. Is that available through the uh, extension office, or uh, is that available independently somewhere else? It is. It's available through your library. Um, I think there's just a a really great chance that your library will have this. Um, As I mentioned, it's a really old book, but it's a good book, and I think you can even get it at uh, some of our local bookstores for a very low cost and uh, excellent reference. All right. Well, um, I tell you what, we got to take a break, Bob, so we're just going to do that right now on Let's Get Growing. This is Cindy Haynes with a Garden Calendar Minute. What is an heirloom tomato? These are tomatoes that have been passed down from generation to generation. They are open-pollinated cultivars, not hybrids. This means the seed can be saved and replanted each year. In fact, this is how heirlooms are kept in production. Heirloom tomatoes are known to be some of the best-tasting tomatoes available. 
But they're not only tasty, they're beautiful as well. Heirlooms come in all different shapes, sizes, and colors. Ripe fruit can be pink, red, yellow, orange, purple, green, or combinations of colors. Even the names sound old-fashioned. Look for Brandywine, Mortgage Lifter, Ox Heart, Yellow Pear, Cherokee Purple, and Green Zebra in your local grocery stores and farmer's market this month. Try several different cultivars. Who knows, maybe you'll find one or two types that you want to grow in your garden next year. Then you will become one of the many gardeners that prefer these flavorful reminders of the past. For Iowa State University Horticulture Extension, I'm Cindy Haynes. Armstrong Small Engine in Donaldson brings you this important message from SEF, a division of VP Racing Fuels. Avoid ethanol in your two-cycle engines whenever possible. Armstrong Small Engine wants you to know that alternative fuels like E20 and E85 can void some manufacturer's warranties. Ethanol attracts moisture into your engine. This can cause poor performance and premature deterioration of your gaskets, fuel lines, and carburetor. With SEF, small engine fuels, you can avoid ethanol-related issues. SEF offers pre-mixed fuels for two-cycle engines. SEF offers 94-octane, 50-to-1 mix ratio, and zero ethanol. Pre-mixed means you open, pour, and go. SEF also takes the worry out of long-term storage with a two-year shelf life in the can or in the machine. Learn more about SEF a division of VP Racing Fuels and their two- and four-cycle engine fuels at Armstrong Small Engine, two miles north of Donaldson on Highway 218. SEF is for use in small engines only, not approved for on-the-road use. And we return once again to Let's Get Growing. I'm Matt Frisbee in for Gary Folio this week, and uh, also Bob Dodds. Same old Bob Dodds, I know. to be perfectly <laughs> honest. That's a good thing, folks. It really is a good thing because he is the man with the plan and uh, the information so far as agriculture and uh, gardening and horticulture and everything else, to be perfectly honest. If it's related to growing something, he probably knows something about it. So speaking of knowing about something, uh, sounds like we've got something special coming up here in the first full week of uh, September. That's right. That's exactly right, Matt. And probably you and I have already spoken about most of the things that are going to be at the field day, mm-hmm. but, but those were kind of brief and, and quick and to the point. But for our local farmers or people um, that have a real interest in landowners as well, we have our fall field day at the Southeast Iowa Research Farm and Demonstration Farm. And this is on September the 8th, and the program will begin at 1.30 um, this year, Kevin Vandy, of course, is a farm superintendent at the Research Farm, and the Research Farm is located at Crawfordsville. And to get to the Research Farm, uh, just simply follow Highway 218 North. Uh, it's about one and three quarters miles south of Crawfordsville. Then you go two, e- two miles east on G62, and then three quarters of a mile north on the Louisa Washington Road, and just simply watch for the signs. But as I was mentioning, crop. Uh, season review will be presented by Kevin Vandy. He's our farm superintendent. And then most people, a lot of people know Ellen Taylor, Iowa State University climatologist, uh, always predicting yields, always predicting the weather. But he'll talk about the heat and the drought and the impact on expected corn yields and talk a little bit about corn prices as well. In addition, uh, Kendall, Dr. Kendall Lampke, who is chair of the Iowa State University Department of Agronomy, uh, a plant breeder by trade, he will talk about the progress in, in developing drought-tolerant corn and does an excellent job. And if you've not listened to Dr. Lampke, he is just excellent to, to visit with and seems to make things uh, very understandable and, and can also tell you about where we're headed with um, new, new traits and new developments in corn. And then uh, also we'll talk a little bit about soil sampling and making sense of, 
of soil test reports, and of course that's so important as soil uh, or as fertility uh, fertilizer prices seem to just continue to go up and up and up. We want to make sure that we're taking soil samples that make sense and that we're being able to interpret them and get the most out of those results. Of course, so. fertilizer prices are kind of tied to uh, petroleum prices, right? Exactly. Most of our fertilizers are dependent on petroleum. That's exactly for production. right. Yeah. That's exactly right, Matt. Yeah. And and that's also true of phosphorus and potash. We've just seen such a such an increase in those, and of course, that kind of goes back to transportation and fuel and energy and all those things again. So. Uh, another field day that we have coming up, and we mentioned this really briefly the other day, and this is going to be at the same location again, the Southeast Iowa Research Farm, and this will be on CRP Native Grass Field Day. And we have, this is being sponsored by Iowa State Extension, the Farm Service Agency, and also um, the DNR. But we're going to talk a little bit about native grass plots, and we're going to feature some fall dormant seedings from frost seedings, spring seedings. We're going to learn about seed beds, how to prepare them, the time of seeding, weed control and establishing native grasses, and of course many of our, many people who enjoy hunting or just simply enjoy wildlife just absolutely really enjoy establishing native grasses and knowing the difference between the different types. And we're going to talk about converting brome grass to native grasses and also what to consider when seeding uh, native pollinating pollinator habitat areas areas and so greg brenneman who's our ag engineer will be leading this uh, field day no registration is needed and there's no cost for this field day to attend so i think it'll be a great day and people should enjoy that i'm just looking for a time on it and 6 p.m thank you man that's great and that will be on september the 13th again and so i appreciate uh, i think it'll just be a great day and again that's at the research farm near crawfordsville so so it sounds like that one is uh something that not only the farmer could appreciate but say the hunter or the conservationist or um just anybody who's interested in wildlife and nature exactly exactly matt and one of the other topics that's not even listed but if you talk with the people there a lot of times people may have these areas or fields and would like to know more about how to burn them off in the spring and so these would be that would be a subject that you could sure ask those questions of those people that are presenting that field day but uh, we have a beautiful area up there and greg uh, dr brenneman does a very nice job in explaining uh, what we've learned over the last 10 years through those plots that's for sure another reference that i brought today we often at our extension offices receive lots and lots of questions and lots of different samples about weeds and how to identify them and whether or not we have uh, poisonous weeds or um, uh, weeds that uh, can be developed into crops and some that are edible, all kinds of good questions. But a reference book that I just wanted to mention, often people ask me, what what is a good book to have? And I really like this book. It's called Weeds of the West. <laughs> yeah, I know. I like the name. Weeds of the West, and it's actually printed by the University of Wyoming. But if you look through the table of contents, you will see authors, and they're all from the university. Most of them are extension weed scientists all the way from Texas to Colorado to Washington to Montana to Minnesota to California, Idaho, Utah, Oregon State, Washington, and, and, of course, Iowa State University as well. I think they do a wonderful job in putting it together by plant family, and um, they just do a great job. They show the mature plant. They give you a nice narrative as to what it is, and then they also show you uh, pictures of it when it's in the seedling stage or in the reproductive stage as well. Uh, but it, this is a reference. This one's showing its age, but... 
I uh, use it all the time. It's very, very um, inexpensive, filled with beautiful color pictures, and again, uh, showing it in lots of different stages. But I mean, technically, the pictures are called, are pictures of weeds, but they they are actually very very stylish. Yes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> almost framing quality, right? Almost, yeah, almost. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's a great great reference. And again, that one's called Weeds of the West. And I think you can find that on the uh, on Amazon, or you can talk with the extension office, and we can sure sure find a location or a, a phone number for the university uh, to to um, uh, that you can call. But again, the Western Society of Weed Science in cooperation with the Western United States Land Grant Universities and Extension Service put it together. But uh, this one's a really, this one goes all the way back to 1991. I'm sure there's probably a, a new edition, but again, this is put together and printed by the University of Wyoming. So if you wanted to go to their website, I'm sure you could find it. Lots of interest always in in organic farms and organic growing. And this is a new reference that I received um, through the USDA. Mm -hmm. And it's called Crop Rotation on Organic Farms. And it was put together by the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education. Uh, SARE is the the name of this. And, uh, or the company, corporation, I should say, or part of the USDA that put this together. But they do a very nice job, very... Very simple reference book, but uh, very low cost. And again, you can contact the extension service. This is more for probably an acreage or a small farm that's interested in doing some work with organic growing. A lot of times we have questions about crop rotation. How can we handle fertility levels? And this is, I think, one of the best references I have seen. Um, Another neat little tool that I wanted to mention, we've been receiving a few questions about fall gardening. And I just wanted to mention that you're starting to see these. These are more available commercially um, through some of the garden stores locally here or also online. But uh, it gives you some very nice ideas about when to plant that fall garden, vegetable garden, not only fall, but when to plant it, uh, what type of crop it is, when it should be, how much sun it needs, the spacing between the rows, how many days it takes to germinate, how many days to expect it to when you can harvest, and even a little bit on the height of the of the plant. And, uh, for example, if we took uh, pumpkins, they recommend sowing, uh, if you just simply sow the seed direct, April through June. It is definitely a warm season crop, needs about six hours or more of sunshine. We'd like to have at least four foot between the hills. It takes about seven to ten days before that seed finally germinates. It needs a growing season of 110 days. And the height of the plant is simply a low-growing uh, vine crop. So just some, just kind of a very nice little wheel. And this one happens to go through spinach and radishes and squash and zucchini and sweet corn and cucumber and eggplant and green beans. And, and the list goes on, onions as well. So uh, very, very nicely done, very low cost, but a great tool to use. So. Great bit of information packed into a very convenient form, to be perfectly honest, a great, a great and handy reference. Bob, we've got to take another break here, but uh, we're going to be right back to wrap things up here on Let's Get Growing. Sounds great. Okay, I promised you some naked ladies, so here they are. <laughs> but joining me fully clothed is Dr. Cindy Haynes from ISU. And Cindy, tell us more about these flowers. Well, this is a naked lady, um, or a naked lady bulb. Um, they're 
Lycoris squamagira. Um, they're also called resurrection lilies, surprise lilies, and magic lilies. And they're called that because they bloom without any foliage, which is kind of unusual mm -hmm. uh, for a summer blooming bulb. In spring, the foliage comes up. It lasts for about a month in the garden, and then it disappears or dies in about midsummer. And in August, usually mid-August, um, the these kind of pink flowers just magically appear out of the ground, hence their common names. So if they go away, um, they'll come back. Don't, don't think yeah, they're dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone thinks they're dead, uh -huh. but they're not. Usually okay. the foliage uh, disappears and then the flowers come back. Yeah, a month later. Okay. Now I can hear everyone running out to the garden center asking for naked ladies. Um, <laughs> do they do well in our zones? They do really well in our zones. They're hardy to zone four and five. Um, they need full sun to partial shade and well-drained soil. And that's just essentially all the requirements. It does, you know, it's pretty tolerant of our conditions. Mm -hmm. They bloom in late summer, about August. The blooms last for about two to three weeks. And you can buy the bulbs in your garden centers, usually in September or October. And it's like any other bulb, you generally plant them in the fall, about six to eight inches deep. Okay, and this is typically the color? This is the, the this is the only color they come in. They're pretty. Um, they're pretty and they're kind of fragrant as well. And they're very unusual in the garden. All right, well, that sounds fun. And if you'd like more information on Naked Ladies, the flower, be sure to log on to our websites. For Gardening in the Zone, I'm Liz Gelman. KSB Insurance is your hometown trusted choice insurance agency dedicated to meeting all of your personal and business insurance needs. Give us a call or stop in at our Keokuk or Burlington location and let one of our friendly agents work with you to save some green on your insurance. KSB Insurance, protecting what matters to you. Well, we're down at Gate City Seed Company. Dave's over here doing the jumping around, rain dancing thing. He's been rain dancing ever since last Saturday when we did this. Still isn't rain. you got to change I'm that tired, step. got to change that step. Let's get something else going on here. Need a little water. But anyway, there's still problems we got going on. we got bugs. Bugs are trying to come in the house. Of course, we've got water in the house. They're trying to come in. I don't know if that's why, but they are trying to come in. We can stop them at Gate City Seed. The mice are moving every time the weather changes. They're moving. we got the one bite of Gate City Seed. It works every time. We can help with the rodents and the bugs. Come and see us at Gate City Seed, 824 Main in Keokuk. And we're back on Let's Get Growing. Matt Frisbee in once again for Gary Folio this week and uh, Bob Dodds from the ISU Extension Office. And, Bob, uh, let's wrap things up with something a little sweet. Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds great, Matt. We, uh, I thought it was just kind of... Uh, this is from the Iowa DNR magazine, and, and just a great magazine. So if you uh, enjoy wildlife, uh, take a look at this one. And Missouri also has an excellent reference uh, through their Department of Natural Resources as well. Just a couple of fun things. Honeybees have sure been in the news, and we've often spoken about some of the disease problems that we're seeing with them and also the declining numbers. But I think sometimes we really take them for, for uh, granted and, and forget how, how important they are in our lives. It takes to make one pound of honey, a worker bee must fly about 55,000 miles and tap two million flowers. In a lifetime, one uh, worker bee will produce about one twelfth of a teaspoon of honey, which is pretty interesting. Or theoretically, the energy in one ounce of honey would provide uh, one bee with enough energy to fly around the world. So I thought that was kind of interesting. When we talk, Iowa has approximately about 1,500 beekeepers. They range all the way from a hobbyist with, hobbyist with a couple of hives to commercial producers with thousands. And uh, there are roughly about 30,000 bee colonies in the state, and each may contain as many as 55,000 bees. The Iowa bees produce approximately 3.1 million pounds of honey per year, 
uh, and worth an estimated $3.5 million over the last five years. And this is according to the Iowa Honeybee Producers Association. Um, what's interesting is what goes on inside a honeybee differs with the season. And that, that's as you would expect. But con contrary to other insects and birds, uh, most bee species do not migrate. They are left here to live or die uh, in their own environment. In the fall and winter, the drones, who, s who serve no other purpose than to mate with the queen, are often asked to leave the hive, and this produce, uh, preserves the resources, and so they quickly die and starve. But winter takes its toll on the older bees, and the survivor uh, hunker down to conserve and produce heat, egg laying ceases, and the brood raising ends. And then the available food source dictates when the brood rearing begins. And as spring arrives, the colony expands as young emerge and the drones are produced. Nectar gathering and honey production increases, and the workers set about raising a new queen. And then in the summer, the colonies split and form new hives. And that's why we often receive lots of questions about swarming and uh, collecting bees. So, Well, that's a pretty nice summary, Bob. Unfortunately, we've used up all our time today. My, how fast this, this, this program goes. Anyway, thanks for listening to Let's Get Growing with Bob Dodds from the ISU Extension Office. I'm Matt Frisbee in for Gary Folio. Hope you have a great day, everybody.